When you're smiling. Hey, you. Bubbly sparkling water is crisp, refreshing, and perfect for any occasion. Kind of like my voice, but in a can. No calories, no sweeteners, all smiles. Bubbly. Crack a smile. Hello, movie lovers. Welcome to the Best Damn Movie Related Show here on the internet. This show is as always for movie lovers tonight, John DiGorio, and I just want to say it's an honor and a privilege to be able to talk about movies in front of our virtual water cooler. And for today's podcast, I'm going to be talking about the Morbius trailer that just dropped today. Then I'm going to be talking about Dracula, the Netflix show that was also part of the BBC company, and then they went on ahead and made their own Dracula TV series. I'm going to go ahead and talk about that. Then I'm going to be talking about Stephen King's The Outsider. The first two episodes for The Outsider dropped last night. I'm going to go into a non-spoiler review for both of those episodes. And after that, I'm going to be talking about Dwayne Johnson is going to actually have his own little biopic sitcom called Young Rock. So I'm going to be talking about that. Then I'm going to drop down to my top 10 vampire movies of all time. Since we're talking about Morbius, I figured this would be actually a good time for me to actually talk about my favorite vampire movies, especially when I'm going to be talking about the new Dracula Netflix show. So, with further ado, let's go on ahead and get into this. So, I've been excited for this Morbius movie since it's been announced. Since Jared Leto's been attached to it, since Sony actually came out and announced that, hey look, we're going to have a Morbius movie. Not only that, but Morbius was actually supposed to wind up being part of the Andrew Garfield movie and series for The Amazing Spider-Man. And then they decided to go with Mysterio for some odd reason. But I'm glad that they're going on ahead and doing a Morbius movie. And I wanted this to actually be a horror movie type of feel to it. Where we actually get to see a vampire type of horror movie that we haven't gotten to see from a comic book based movie since Blade. And let me just tell you, I was not disappointed with this trailer. I love that for at least uh, background music and everything else from Big Tobin, I love that aspect to it. And then they actually added into some other type of heavy beat to the for at least thing. I actually enjoy that. It actually dropped the tone for this, what this movie's gonna be about. Then, also, too, what I also liked about was the transformation of Morbius, about Jared Leto, how he has this disease, and he's actually trying to find a cure for his disease that's been tearing him apart in his body, and he thinks that he actually found the cure for it, but only to find out that the disease is not just the most dangerous thing that's that's actually part of him. Now you actually have this cure that he actually found, that's actually worse than what the disease actually is. And I'm glad they actually ended up putting that part into the trailer itself because of the fact that he wants to find a cure for himself and he winds up finding the cure, but sometimes the cure is actually more, is worse than the whole entire disease itself. I like that aspect to that trailer. And then the transformations. I'm glad that they're going with the human form at first with this, just going into the powers itself and then... You see this whole entire cure eating him away to the fact that he's having vampire-like symptoms. He's actually having the whole entire thing, kind of like what Aquaman has with his powers, with the whole entire thing where he actually has that supersonic wave type of thing. I forgot what they actually call it, but he actually has that kind of power where he actually can control parts of the ocean or he can actually hear the superhuman-like hearing that he actually has. So I actually like that aspect. Then 
like I said, dropping down into the whole entire uh, thing where his whole entire human-like features is disappearing. He's turning more into a vampire-like character from what we actually want to actually see from a Morbius movie is the whole entire transformation of the vampire. And that's what I loved about it was the fact that it took its time to actually go about in the whole entire thing where you actually have Jared Leto as a human and is slowly eating him away. And now he's actually a vampire form. I'm hoping that they actually put that in the movie itself. Where you have a slow transformation rather than going, bam, now he's a vampire. I don't want that. I want to see a slow process. Like, it goes day-by-day basis of how his powers wind up turning uh, turning into the way it, it, it he is in his human form. And then slowly, that whole entire <clears throat> cure winds up eating him away. That's what I want to see. I want to see something that's going to be a slow-moving thing. And I feel like that's what we're going to be getting. It's a slow process with the transformation. And I love that aspect too, where they actually put that slow process in there. And then, very end of it, you actually have uh, Michael Keaton in this movie. And I want to say, I'm glad they actually put the Falcon into this movie. And I cannot wait to see what kind of thing that they're actually going to be setting up. I'm speculating that they're going with the Sinister Six Things since they're actually been pointing that out a little bit here and there, and it actually makes sense to me to actually put the Sinister Six since you actually introduce Venom. Not only that, but you can also introduce other characters into this MCU or the Sony Universe or Sony Verse is what I'm going to be calling it. And I also like the fact too that they're even keeping the continuity to where you can actually have Spider-Man in the same universe where it dwells in this whole entire universe. And we already know that we're actually going to get two two more Spider-Man films. So with them putting Morbius and even Venom into this thing, it makes me excited to actually see Tom Holland maybe actually going after Venom or maybe going after Morbius into the future. But they're setting up this whole entire Sinister Six thing beautifully. You have Venom that came out, then you have Morbius. And we already know that we are getting a Venom 2. So we might even get to see Spider-Man in a Venom 2 scenario where you actually have to pick between the two sides. Does he want to take down Venom or does he want to go on ahead and take down Carnage? Carnage is the worst of the evils, but Venom is also the anti-hero that people are actually rooting, that you can actually root for. So you have that aspect. So you actually have to have where he's actually battling the two evils but as far as Morbius trailer and everything else I'm totally sold I'm a huge fan of Morbius I was excited whenever they even announced that there was even going to be a Morbius uh villain in the Andrew Garfield um universe that they actually had at that one time but now that's stripped away Andrew Garfield of course is no longer Spider-Man and now we actually have Tom Holland as Spider-Man and this is actually going to be an origin story to Morbius rather than going on ahead and putting him in a whole entire Spider-Man movie so it makes me excited to actually have a horror type of flavor to this whole entire Morbius thing. Now I'm going to drop down to Dracula, the Netflix show. This is actually part of the BBC. BBC made a deal with Netflix and it got released over into Netflix. And you know, the very first time that I saw this movie, this, not this movie, but this TV show, it's actually an hour and some more minutes or two hours long. And you know what? It actually feels like a two-hour movie rather uh, rather than a four three-part episodes. 
But what I liked about this Dracula thing was the fact that, yes, it does have a little bit of repetitiveness whenever you look down to the origin of Dracula itself. Especially when we already get the point. Jonathan comes in there and everything. He's the lawyer and then Dracula goes on ahead, sucks his blood to become younger. And then it goes into the whole entire thing with the next episode where he winds up, of course, going into where he wants to go to London. But there's so much stuff to actually gravitate towards with the first episode where you actually have, you know, the whole entire non- nuns and everything else, they're actually interviewing Jonathan to under- try and understand who Dracula actually is and trying to understand it from that perspective. And that's what I liked about it was the fact that they're actually trying to understand Dracula, what he's actually aiming for, what's his end goal, what's he trying to do, and trying to learn him. And then, also too, you're wondering too, while she's actually, t- as Jonathan's actually telling his story from his perspective... What's the actual deal here? Did Dracula actually let him live? What's going on? And then the whole entire transformation on the way that ends up happening. Something winds up happening inside that whole entire nun convent. And then the revealance of what happens. And then it, and then all of a sudden Dracula winds up appearing and everything. And then you also have this whole entire thing where they're going over to England. So that way he can actually find his so-called bride to where he can actually be with somebody that he can actually turn into a vampire that's not actually afraid of dying. So I like that aspect where, you know, as human beings, we're all scared of dying and stuff like that. And he wants to meet the one girl that's actually not afraid of dying because of the fact that he wants them to embrace the fact that they're not going to be actually living. They're going to be living on forever. Not Well, yeah, they're not going to be actually dying, but they're going to be living on through him forever and everything with, his, uh, with, of course, being a vampire. So I love the fact that they want to embrace that. Then you get into the next episode, and, you know, it turns out into 123 years later, him living underneath the water, and him's, and he's all of a sudden resurrected again. And so it happens to be there's actually this company called the Jonathan, uh, I forgot what his last name is, but they wind up naming him after Jonathan, which is the guy, the lawyer that came and saw Dracula in his Transylvania castle. And I actually like that aspect too, where you actually have these group of doctors and everything else that they're, they're trying to understand him yet again. And of course you have Van Helsing, Van Helsing's daughter, that's trying to actually understand him. And everything from today's time. And matter of fact, what I liked about the fact is, too, we actually get to see Dracula in a 2019-2020 era versus him being in those 1800s and stuff like that. Because here's the thing. I wanted to see something new from Dracula other than the fact I will suck your blood. I wanted to see more from him. I wanted to see layers of Dracula that we haven't seen before. And I wanted him to be in an era of this generation versus something that we've already seen before. Don't get me wrong, we had Dracula 2000, where he was in our time period in the year 2000. But I wanted to see how he would actually react and how he would interact with some some of the ages of 2019 and 2020 because technology has changed. The ways of us actually um, do, doing things has changed a lot since the year 2000. 
when you look at texting, when you look at dating apps, when you look at certain things. And matter of fact, he's using dating apps to actually find ways to actually interact with women versus him trying to go out. And then, of course, he does go out to this nightclub and he meets Lucy. And there's actually a new spin on Lucy that we haven't seen before. So I actually like that fact that they actually kept the character's name the same, but they modernized it into today's time because we haven't actually gone to see that before. And I thought that was a brand new twist that they ha- that I haven't seen before. And, you know, the fact that they even did this was actually pretty neat, pretty original that I haven't seen before. And I have to say, Dracula was actually a lot of fun to actually watch, but you actually have to keep a close eye on everything that's going on. You have to keep a close eye on the background of each thing that Dr- when Dracula is saying anything, you actually have to pay, pay very close attention to it. Because of the fact that when you think you figured out one thing, he winds up finding another way to actually twist things around to where it actually better supplied and it also winds up being something that you didn't think of it actually being. Then the final episode, I would have to say, is probably like the letdown of the whole entire season, to be honest with you. Because I didn't understand what they were actually trying to do with that, other than the fact that they were trying to make him embrace death. And to me, that goes a whole entire thing about his character and stuff like that. And I really don't didn't care for that type of ending on the way they try to do it. And everything, and I'm not going to spoiler territory. The way they try to do it was very forceful to the point where I would actually have to say that it actually goes against what Dracula's character actually is. But other than that, though, the episodes itself are very are long, but it actually feels like a movie rather than a TV show. I actually like that aspect. Having it in a 2019-2020 era was actually pretty cool. Keeping the original characters the way they were in the old Bram Stoker um, novel was actually pretty cool too, just modernizing it and making it its own thing rather than doing a whole entire rehash of something that we already seen before. So I liked that idea. I liked what they did with it. I had a lot of fun watching season one, whether or not that they actually renew for season two, that's another story. But for a series that's actually limited, I believe, and everything, I liked it. I enjoyed it. Tell me what you guys think. Did you like Dracula? For the Netflix show, do you want to see more of Dracula? What would you like? Tell me, tell me in the um, voice voicemail that that we actually have, the way you can actually send in a voicemail message. Tell me what you guys think about that. Now I'm going to be talking about the Outsider. The Outsider is actually a Stephen King novel that came out a couple of years ago, and you know what? A matter of fact, I'm having to reread it because of the fact that I was reading something else and I forgot what actually happens, but. For the most part, with episode one, it sets up beautifully. Um, And not only that, but you actually have, you know, the guy from Date Night and everything else. Um, Not Date Night, but uh, Jason Bateman is actually in it. And Game Night is the movie that I'm thinking of. And he plays in it. He also directed uh, two episodes, the first two episodes he directed. And he even plays the baseball coach that is actually... here's the thing, you don't know that he actually killed this kid, and there's this whole entire murder investigation that's being taken place, and he actually gets arrested on the baseball field, and all his DNA, everything matches up to what, um, matches up to the victim and everything of his DNA being on the victim, and here's this lawyer that's actually saying, no, that's not true, he was at this place at a certain time that when this murder took place, 
and everything's just pointing in his direction. It makes you wonder, is he, did he really commit this crime? Who actually committed his crime? And then I'm also wondering too, is this, does he have a twin that he doesn't even know about? And that's actually causing him to be framed for this murder that he didn't commit. That's another thing too, that I'm actually thinking. But like I said, I haven't read enough through the book to actually know what's going on within the TV show at all either. So, you know, for me, it's a little bit of a murder mystery thing where I don't know for the first time of reading a Stephen King book, I don't know what's actually going on or anything like that. Other than the fact that, you know, if you read the first couple of chapters, it actually follows through with the first couple of chapters that you actually read or the first couple of pages that you read that it actually follows through with episode one. With episode two, he's still in jail. He's trying to figure out a way to actually get out of jail and try and clear his name. And the cop is even now having second guesses up at if he's actually the one who actually killed the kid and everything else too. And how is this actually connected with anything that happened with him in his past? So I like that idea. I like that whole entire concept. And Jason Bateman, I mean, I'm, I'm going to have to give the guy credit. I mean, when you look at the Ozark, when you look at other shows that he's actually done that's actually drama related, the guy has a lot of good acting chops when it comes to his dramatic roles. And I even like him in his comedy and everything too, but his dramatic roles is what sells me as, as an actor for Jason Bateman. Because it shows that he can actually do more than just comedy and everything. And the fact, too, that whenever he says that he didn't kill the kid or whatever, you want to believe him. You want to actually believe that this guy, in no way, shape, or fashion, has actually killed this kid. And then you actually have this community that's now against him because of the stuff that actually happened on the baseball field with him being arrested for this crime that he may or may not have committed. And no one's actually believing him that he didn't commit the crime. So I like that. And then, of course, his wife's also defending him, of course, because he does, she doesn't want to believe that her husband's actually done this type of thing. And then, of course, the cop is actually played by Ready Player One, the villain from Ready Player One. And let me just tell you this. At first, you're thinking that maybe you're actually agreeing with this cop. Maybe he's actually, all this evidence does point to the baseball coach that actually killed this kid. To the point where he gathers up the information, the process, and everything. Another thing, too, is that I really liked with with the show is it shows the anxieties of whenever a cop shoots somebody. And the aftermaths of whenever somebody kill whenever he kills somebody, and that's what I liked was the psychiatric help that he tries to get help with, and that's what I liked about that, about the show and everything too is how realistic it actually is and how they actually don't ignore mental health whenever it comes down to police officers. So I actually liked it. So tell me what you guys think. Did you guys like the outsider? What didn't you like about the outsider? Outsider, let me know. Like I said, I'm going to have this whole entire voicemail thing set up to where you guys can actually send me in voicemail messages about the show. Not only that, but if you guys have any questions or anything like that that you would like for me to answer on the show, I'll be glad to go on ahead and talk about that too. Because here's the thing. I want to do a show that's actually dedicated to you guys, the fans. So let me know what you guys think about that, about The Outsider, because I have a feeling that this show is going to be even more intense as the episodes go on. So... Another thing that I want to talk about is Dwayne Johnson for Young Rock. This is actually going to be a sitcom show, sitcom show that's going to be a one-camera show. 
And it's going to go into the life of Dwayne The Rock Johnson. It's going to go into his whole entire Bahama Bull days and everything. You know what? I mentioned in my article that I always liked The Rock. I've always been a wrestling fan. Well, I kind of dropped out of the whole entire wrestling thing back in the early 2000s. The last wrestling match that I actually fully unwatched was the Undertaker match, ladder match against one of the Hardy Boys. I'm watching that match. But... In the late 90s, I was a fan of WWE and WCW. Sting was one of my favorite wrestlers as well because I'm always into the dark wrestler types, even The Undertaker. But The Rock was one of those um, wrestlers that I actually found attracted to because of the fact of his charisma and and also to his comedic timing and also how he is able to wrestle and everything. And he was actually the people's champ. And... How charismatic he is, too. That's what I like about Dwayne The Rock Johnson is the fact that he's just an outstanding actor. He gives his 110% in anything he does and everything he does. But I always found him interesting to the point where I'm like, you know what? One day I would like to actually see a biopic about Dwayne The Rock Johnson. And a matter of fact, he's going to be playing his younger self and everything, too. He's actually going to have another actor, too. Well, he's going to play his older self, and then he's also going to get another actor to play his younger self. So I actually like that aspect where you're actually going to have a back and forth thing between two actors and stuff like that, where he's going to be playing, um, both actors are going to be playing the same role for Dwayne The Rock Johnson. And then, of course, like I said, it goes into his Bahama Bull days and everything, so I can't wait to see what they're actually going to do with the Dwayne The Rock Johnson TV show. And like I said, the guy is really great. He's really charismatic. He has the acting chops. He can do just about anything that he puts his mind to. And not only that, but his schedule got freed up a couple of months back and everything to where he didn't even really have that much projects to go through. If you looked at his schedule, it was pretty tight. Now he's got maybe three, maybe four projects, if that, if you actually look at his IMDb, unless that actually changed. But still, it makes me excited to see what NBC is actually going to do with Dwayne The Rock Johnson, Young Rock Show. Now, I'm going to be talking about my top 10 favorite movie, vampire movies. Like I said, whenever I was mentioning, mentioning Morbius, and then after that, I was going to be talking about Dracula. And then, I'm like, you know what? I want to go ahead and talk about my top 10 favorite vampire movies. So, number one, I have Interview with a Vampire. This movie turned 20 years old last year. And I was going to do a review on it, but I figured now would be a best time as any. But when you look at Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt for during that time for an interview with the vampire, it was the most, it was the most outstanding film during that time. It was nominated for several Academy Awards, Brad Pitt, and also to um, Tom Cruise. With the way that they actually carried themselves in that movie, you can actually believe they were le- that Brad Pitt was actually Lestat, oh, not Lestat, but Tom Cruise was Lestat and everything. And I just have to say, I mean, the chemistry between them two was just awesome to and everything. And Brad Pitt playing, playing Louise, it was, I mean it, it was actually one of the best casting choices that they actually could have done during the 90s. And then Kirsten Dunst as the little girl with the vampire girl and everything. It was a really great movie. And then the way that he's actually being interviewed, the way that Brad Pitt is actually being interviewed in this vampire 
setting and everything is just outstanding and you really care about him as a human on a human form because of the fact that what he's been through as a vampire and you actually want to care about his character you want him to actually succeed in this movie to actually find some kind of happiness in between him being undead and the living and you know, I really liked what they did with that movie for its time. And then you have Antonio Banderas in this movie as one of the vampires and everything, too. And then it's set up in New Orleans. I mean, this movie has everything you wanted. It has romance. It has horror. It has drama. It has everything that you want in a movie that you haven't seen in a vampire type of film during the 90s. And, yes, it does have some corny uh, one-liners, too. It has some corny dialogic flow with it because it is said in the it is a 90s type of movie but you can't deny the chemistry between them two in the way that it was shot and then to whenever uh he wants to try and get when louise wants to get away from lestat and everything and then lestat doesn't want him to leave or anything like that and it was just you know you can actually tell that uh, that lestat just wanted to have his friend to be close to him. It wasn't just about, you know, him turning into a vampire or anything. I believe it was more about friendship and, and he didn't know what to do about his friendship with Louise or anything during that time. It's more of a control issue where it was actually hard to actually um, leave the masters of their vampires and everything and they don't want to see their uh, see their people to actually go off and do their own thing and you know I thought that that was actually a pretty cool concept in everything the way that I actually viewed it but if you haven't seen Interview with a Vampire I strongly recommend that you check that out I love the chemistry between Brad Pitt and Tom Cruise the way it was shot the angles and everything else some of the and I'll be honest too the special effects just doesn't hold up or anything but it's a great vampire movie if you're wanting to check out a vampire film and it's actually on Netflix or Hulu, I believe, because I actually rewatched it recently. And I want to say maybe it's on Hulu. But go on and check it out. Let me know what you guys think. The next movie I'm going to be talking about is based off of a graphic novel, believe it or not. And that movie is 30 Days of Night. This movie stars Josh Hardnett. And what is so horrifying about it, this vampire movie is the fact that it takes place in Alaska where they actually have 30 days of night. And these people actually have to survive in, La- in Alaska with 30 days of night with vampires and it's the most horrifying wrenching thing that you could actually think of the gore was actually needed for for what it needed to be for it wasn't just there for the sake of being there the violence was actually there because it's actually part of the whole entire vampire thing everything in itself really worked and really balanced itself out i really have to say i had a lot of fun watching 30 days at night whenever it first got released and you know what? I haven't seen the movie since, but I mean, I'm just going based off of memory and about how, you know, I was on the edge of my seat through the whole entire movie wondering how are these people going to be getting out of this situation with these vampires? How are, are they all going to live or are they going to die? Or is it just going to be a blood fest where nobody die, uh, nobody lives, but all these vampires are the ones who ones up coming out on top? But even if they did come out on top, and this is just me thinking about this while I'm watching the movie during the time, because I still remember my thought process. Okay, even if they go about winning this whole entire thing, feeding on the humans and everything, you also have 30 days of daylight, too, where, you know, you actually have it to where they actually have to survive. 
And there's no way that they can actually survive being out during the daytime or anything like that. So, you know, they would actually have to find somewhere else to actually go. So, But having 30 days a night, there's just something horrifying there. There's just something, that mystery thereof, if they're actually going to survive that. And that's what I have to say I liked about the 30 days a night was the originality behind it. And it was also based off of a graphic novel. But like I said, there's that mystery of not knowing if these people are going to survive. So, that movie is actually my number two on the ten days uh, ten to my top ten movie list. Number three, I'm dropping down to Fright Night, nineteen eighty five, and the reason why I love this whole entire concept is because you actually have this neighbor, this teenage kid, and he's looking out the window and he's looking through the binoculars of his neighbor, and he believes that his neighbor is actually a vampire, and that lives next door to him, and he's actually thinking that he's sucking the blood out of the girls that he's actually dating, and, you know, come to find out or whatever, you know, every single time when, you know, you call up the cops or whatever, of course, there's always going to be a cover-up and everything is, oh, no, that's not true, look, there's no bite marks on my neck, everything is funky-dory, everything is fine, and then he calls up the cops again, and then it comes back back and forth thing. It kind of reminds you of that Shia LaBeouf movie and everything where he sees somebody getting murdered. The serial killer said, oh, no, that's not true. Next thing you know, it, the cops are thinking that he's just crying wolf. And that's basically that situation. And then you actually have his friends that are turning into vampires and stuff like that. And then the only person that can actually stop him is the guy from this Van Helsing TV show. That's no, he knows everything about vampires and stuff like that. And now it's up to them to try and take down this vampire to save their save his friends. And I love that whole entire thing where, yeah, this guy plays a vampire hunter. But he does not, in fact, believe in vampires. He just does it for a gimmick. And everything. And now it's up to them to go ahead and try and save his friends. And that's what I liked about it was the mythology behind the vampire stuff in itself. Where nobody actually believes that there's any vampires or anything like that. But there's this teenage kid that actually believes in vampires. And he actually sees a vampire biting this girl's neck. So that's what I liked about Fright Night. And it also has a lot, little bit of comedy to it. It has a little bit of... Also, too, it has to, actually has a little bit of comedy to it. You know, it's the 80s. You're going to have some cheesy dialogue and some cringe-worthy dialogue, too, to go with it. But uh, Fright Night, 1980s, will always be my favorite thing to actually watch. As a matter of fact, I think I even put that on my 31 Days of Horror list whenever I was doing my 31 Days of Horror and everything, but I'm gonna drop down to another 1980s movie. As a matter of fact, I put I know for most definitely I put this on my 31 Days of Horror, and that is The Lost Boys. And The Lost Boys has Keith or Sutherland in it, and also the girl the the girl from Edward Scissorhands that plays the um plays the wife in the in the movie. But anyways, what I liked about this whole entire concept was you actually have these comic book nerds that's in this city that's actually knows that their that their city is actually being taken run by vampires and michael they're all get this michael moved into it, the new city and everything along with his brother and what i liked about it was the fact that you know his brother's off doing his own thing the older brother is michael and then you also have the little brother that's actually doing his own thing 
And, you know, he has his own group of friends. Michael has his other group of friends. And now Michael winds up hanging around with Heather Sutherland's group and everything. And he winds up falling in love with a girl named Star. Star's actually part of Heather Sutherland's vampire group and everything. And then, he, of course, Michael winds up turning into a vampire. And now it's up to um, his other bro- his little brother to try and save him from these vampires and everything else. And that's what I loved about it was the fact, you know, it's comic book related. It's got geeky nerd stuff. And it's up to these people to try and take down these vampires from taking any other kids and everything too. So I actually like that whole entire concept of them trying to actually take down these group of vampires that's actually causing this town to not have kids anymore or anything like that because they're actually taking them and sucking the blood off of these kids and they're all going missing. So that's why it's actually called The Lost Boys. But it's just a fantastic movie. It has some cringeworthy stuff, some comedy into it as well. I really enjoyed it. And, you know, I you can't go wrong with this movie. It's a classic. As a matter of fact, you can actually buy this on Blu-ray. And it's even on Netflix sometimes. Sometimes it's on Hulu. I strongly recommend that if, this movie if you're into, like, an old classic 1980s type of feel to it with a lot of fun nostalgia factors to it. I think that you guys would actually like it. But, you know, I always liked vampire-type movies and everything. And, you know... The very first movie that I actually saw was the black and white Dracula movie. And I remember watching it and how much of a classic that actually was. And, you know, this is actually probably the closest that you would actually get to a Dracula movie without, um, and have that whole classic feel to it of where you actually get the whole entire feel where Jonathan Lawyer comes in and everything and he actually talks to Dracula and Dracula winds up going on ahead, trying to find a bride for for himself and everything. Same concept as what you would get with the Dracula Netflix show. But what makes it so haunting, what makes it so terrifying is the actor playing him. And, you know, the, uh, uh, the actor playing him just did a fantastic job. And, you know, I remember watching those old classic black and white uh, movies and everything and just enjoying it. And, you know, Dezo... Velasco, I think was his name, that played the original, uh, no, Bella Faris is the one that played the original um, Dracula. And I just have to say, he did a fantastic job at playing Dracula. I actually believed he was Dracula and everything else. Yes, the special effects were actually actually outdated, but it's actually a good uh, movie and stuff like that if you're looking for a good classic vampire movie. And I strongly recommend you guys going ahead and check out some old classic black and white horror films. Because they're just as good as these days and everything are. But they're just not having the special effects up to date as they are now. But still, it actually has that horror flavor to it. It actually has that richness where you can actually enjoy a good horror movie if you wanted to. And, you know, Dracula is actually a good uh, black and white classic movie. Now... Bram Stoker's, uh, Stoker's Dracula, the one that came out in the 90s with Keanu Reeves. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. Seeing Keanu Reeves try and do an English accent was probably the most fu- funniest thing that I've actually seen in a vampire film. And, you know, 
when I saw this movie, I this movie brings back memories of me going to the movies with my mom at nine o'clock and at night to go see this movie, and you know, what I loved about this movie was for its time it was actually pretty dark and terrifying for its time. And I'm not just talking about, like, the English dialogue we have known a writer that's trying to do an English impression or anything like that either. But if you look at the concept of what they were trying to go for during that time, it was actually a pretty well-done movie in a certain sense, especially with the effects that they actually had during its time and everything. Was, the special effects for its time was actually ahead of its time, if you think about it. The way they try to do things with the transformations and then also, too, with him trying to do shape-shifting as well. So, I actually have to say that Bran Stalker's um, Dracula was actually a pretty decent movie for its time. Gary Oldman as Count Dracula? Come on. The guy is really good at giving the layers to Dracula that we always loved and know, know from. And, like I said, this is actually my number six movie is Bram Stoker's Dracula. If you haven't seen it, I strongly recommend that you actually check that out just to try and appreciate what they actually tried to do in the 90s. But... Yes, like I said, it's cringeworthy, but it's actually either you can laugh at it or you can actually be a little scared of it at the same time because the whole entire, what you can laugh about is the whole entire thing with him trying, with Keanu Reeves trying to do an English accent whenever he can't even really do an English accent and then when Ona Ryder trying to do an English accent and it just doesn't work out for her. But... All in all, Bram Stoker's Dracula is just one of those movies that you can actually go back and watch and everything and be like, you know what, that movie was okay, or it wasn't that great at all. I mean, it depends on how you look at it. But for me, personally, it brings back memories of the time that I was with my mom and I got around to actually seeing the vampire movie for the very first time and I wound up enjoying it as a kid. Now I will look back on it and everything. I laugh at it because of the cringy dialogue and because of the fact that Ken Reese is actually trying to do an English accent to where you can actually tell that he's actually trying to go for an Oscar nomination even though the even though it's not going to happen. You can actually tell that he's acting his butt off. And the way this movie is, it's definitely not ha happening for Keanu Reeves for this movie. But anyways, check out Bram Stoker's Dracula. I think that you might actually get a little bit of kick out of it. But, you know, check it out. The next movie is my number seven movie, seventh movie in the my favorite vampire movies. And that is From Dusk Till Dawn. This movie stars Quentin Tarantino and George Clooney. George Clooney and Quentin Tarantino are actually brothers in this thing. They're actually going to Mexico to try and meet up with someone. And... Some things go arise on the way over, and they stop at this bar. And it's a, so it happens to be a vampire bar. And get this, you have Cheech that's actually trying to get people to come into this bar. And you don't even know that it's a vampire bar until later on. You have Sama Hayek in it. She's actually one of my favorite actresses, not to mention she's also my crush. My very hot Spanish crush, woman crush. But, you know... I really have to say that this movie is very cheesy in its own way. And actually, you actually know what you're getting from this movie and everything, too. And I also thought that the chemistry between Tarantino and George Clooney was really good. Not only that, but Tarantino is good at playing these crazy characters where he, he's kind of out there in, like, left field. And George Clooney is, is kind of like the calm, cool, chill guy that wants to try and bang just about anybody that he can can find because, hey, he's George Clooney and that's what he does 
And then you have Quentin Tarantino, who's kind of crazy and everything, too. And he's trying to bring him down to a calmer level to where he's actually kind of sane. So, you know, like I said, From Dust Till Dawn is actually a lot of fun as far as vampire movie goes. It's actually one of my favorite vampire movies that you can actually put stuff popcorn in your face and enjoy a cheesy movie like that. And like I said, it's just one of the, like I said, it's just one of those fun movies to where you can turn your brain off for a couple of hours, watch this movie, watch them try to take down some vampires, shoot some vampires, burn some vampires, and go about your business. And I thought that the dynamic between Tarantino and also George Clooney was really good. So if you haven't seen From Dust Till Dawn, I strongly encourage you guys to go up, go on ahead and check it out. It's actually on Netflix right now, so check it out when you actually have a chance. Then I'm now number eight, Blade. As I mentioned before, Blade is what saved the comic book world because of the fact with the whole entire thing with Batman, uh, Batman and Robin. Nobody wanted to take a chance on any type of comic book movies anymore after Batman and Robin because nobody liked Bat Nipples. Nobody liked the directions that they were going in with Batman and Robin. As a matter of fact, they didn't even announce that Blade was even a comic book based movie at all. They just introduced Blade as a vampire movie, and people piled up into the theater and watched Wesley Snipes take down a bunch of vampires, take down Deacon Frost, and also to Deacon Frost is the most iconic Blade villain in the whole entire Blade franchise. And I have to say, I, I still go back and I still watch Blade from time to time because of the fact that I really love seeing Wesley Snipes doing his thing, doing his karate and everything else. And then also too with the stunts that he was doing during that time was just fantastic. It was just, it was just a great fun full time of just watching a great action vampire flick and watching him take down these vampires. And also too, you're wondering too, how is Blade going to be able to take down Deacon Frost? What's going to happen with Deacon Frost at the very end of it? And like I said, I'm all for them to actually reinvent um, Deacon Frost and everything back whenever uh, the actor said that he wanted to go on ahead and play Deacon Frost again if they chose him for a reboot. And, you know, like I said, Blade was just one of those iconic things that just happened in the late 90s where nobody was actually counting on him to actually save the comic book franchise as a whole because I believe if it wasn't for Blade, we wouldn't have the MCU, what it is for today. We wouldn't have what the DC universe is today despite some setbacks with the DCEU and stuff like that. But you can thank your lucky stars for Blade because of the fact that nobody wanted to take a chance on comic book films again. And also, too, it was a box office smash, which also told the studios, like, you know what? The audience really loved this movie. It's a comic book-based movie. Let's start introducing it as a comic book-based movie again. And this actually greenlit a lot more comic book-based movies later on. So... That's what I loved about Blade. My passion for Blade is never going to change. My passion for Deacon Frost is not going to change because I love Deacon Frost as a villain in the Blade universe. So, now I'm going to talk about Underworld. Underworld is actually based off of a uh, graphic novel as well. And let me just tell you, what I loved about... Underworld is the fact that it is an original idea. It's about Celine who's trying to find balance between 
the werewolves and the lichens and the werewolves. And she's kind of tired of going on ahead and trying to take down these group of werewolves and everything else. And then you actually have these werewolves that are trying to mix vampire blood and werewolf blood into human blood. And every single thing that they're working is, is doing is not even working until Michael winds up becoming bitten by a vampire and everything. And so the B can actually carry on, well... Until then, well, I think he actually gets bitten by a werewolf. I'm sorry. He actually gets bitten by a werewolf, and then so Mr. B, Celine winds up biting him and everything, and he can actually accept werewolf blood and also vampire blood at the same time. This movie was has great action in it. The soundtrack kicks major ass. I love watching Kate Beckinsale play Celine uh, in the first two films. I didn't really care for any films after that point, but... I love the Underworld movie, um, first two movies as a whole. I believe those are the best two movie adaptions for a vampire-like story with some action into it. It actually has a very Blade type of feel to it, too, as well. So that's why I'm actually a sucker, suckered into it. And also, too, they actually do the exploding bullet things. They change up ways to actually take down uh, werewolves and stuff like that so there's that concept too of them using guns and also using different bullets for different things to actually take down werewolves so that's what i loved about underworld now i'm going to talk about let me in let me in this is actually my last movie that i'm going to be talking about for my top 10 list and let me just tell you this let me in is so underrated i remember back in 2010 when this thing was announced and whenever it came out, everybody was talking about it, but no one's talking about it now. But this is what the plot line is about. It's about a bully, bullied, uh, this guy who gets bullied at high school, neglected at home, and, and incredibly lonely. A 12-year-old Owen spends his days of plotting revenge on his tormentors and spends his nights spying on another re- on other residents of the apartment complex. His sole friend is Abby, and Abby is the vampire. Now, what I liked about this was the fact that, you know, you actually have this character who's very lonely, who gets tormented by bullies, and the only friend that he actually has is a girl named Abby, and Abby's only seen at night, and it takes place in the 1980s. The, let me just tell you this. The soundtrack in itself is just amazing because I love 80s music, and the fact that they incorporated... Every single 80s song that you can actually possibly think of into this movie is just fantastically well done. Perfectly well executed. You can actually believe that this is actually the 80s. But, you know, Let Me In was actually one of the most original things that I've actually seen in a long time when it comes down to a vampire movie. Because you're always wondering what would happen if you don't invite that vampire in and they just come in anyways. Is it just an anxiety thing or is it just a creature of habit type of thing? And then come to find out, it, come to find out later on in the film, she could die for not being invited in. And the way that they actually did it, the way they actually put her in that whole entire situation was just jaw-dropping to the point where you actually feel something for the vampire that you haven't felt before. Where, you know, they're actually trapped in between the living and the dead and they can't be invited in unless they're actually physically invited in. And you're, and I like the whole entire imagination of the fact that you're wondering, you know, how, what's, how is this movie going to be played out? Is she going to die? Is she going to 
turn him into a vampire so they can be together. The whole entire movie in itself is really good. I really love the plot line with it. It's it's a great original idea for a concept for a vampire movie. And you know what? To this day, I wish that more people would go on ahead and check this out because it's highly underrated. It's one of my favorite vampire movies, probably not of all time, but it's right there, right next to an interview with a vampire. But for me to have this on the list, it's a must to actually take a look at because it, at one time it got like a lot of buzz for Oscar nominations and stuff like that at its time. And also, too, like I said, you're always wondering, and well, at least I'm wondering, what would happen if you were invited, if you didn't invite a vampire in and we, we just left the door open and they try to come in, what would actually happen to the vampire itself? So there's that. So tell me what you guys think. Did you li- guys like my top 10 list? What do you guys not like about my top 10 list? What do you guys think about the Morbius trailer? What do you guys think about Netflix? Is Dracula and The Outsider and Dwayne Johnson? Let me know what you guys think. I'm going to be putting up in the description with the voicemail and everything too. So go on ahead. Let me know what you guys think. If you checked out any of these movies that I actually mentioned, let me know what you guys think. So until next time, bye-bye.